This episode is dedicated to Rob Tokars, Mugni, and Sig Tyro for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. If you can spare a few dollars a month, consider supporting us on Patreon. Not only do you get access to bonus content, but you'll also be supporting this entire project. If everyone who follows us were to support us with even $1 a month, this project could actually sustain my living and make this the only thing I do. Many leftist passion projects like this one have disappeared because the creators eventually had to make a financial decision whether to continue or not. The pandemic has only accelerated this timetable. I'm not just talking about myself or Southpaw. There are plenty of others who could use your support. There's actually enough of us to all support one another. We just never thought about it. Sometimes, we just need a reminder. I also recognize many of you are also in difficult financial situations. And Paul and I appreciate you following us and telling your friends about us. If that's the only aid you can give, that's more than enough. Find links to our Patreon and our store at southpawpod.com. This is Sam. This is Austin. And this is Southpaw. So I know you started training in martial arts really in earnest when you came back to the U.S., but was there a thriving martial arts scene also in the Czech Republic? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I still when I go to the Czech Republic, I still like uh, train um, at an alternative gym. Um, You know, like I have commercial gyms that I train at all over the world and I have alternative gyms that I train at all over the world. and like, it just depends on the city, but Prague is a place where generally I train in an alternative gym because there are actually too many fascists in like the, like the commercial, uh, mainstream gyms. And when you say alternative gym, do you mean more like these training collectives? Cause I've done episodes with different training collectives before. Yes. It's a, I mean, I, I'm very, uh, I'm, I don't want to say very tied in with the European, uh, various training collectives, but I'm moderately well-connected, um, with them. And, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes like when I'm in a city, like I'll come in and I won't do a seminar, but like, I'll hold like a, a special, like, you know, like three hour training session going over like, you know, techniques in certain gyms. And sometimes I just show up and I'll just train, you know, like with whoever's there, depending on what day it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I have a lot of friends who are part of the alternative training collectives throughout Europe. Seems like also anything related to grappling is much more popular here. And all the European martial arts friends I have, they're much more involved in K1 or Muay Thai. Uh, yeah, I I think that, you know, BJJ is popular here. MMA is popular here, you know, um, I mean, in a way, I think the U.S. is having a Muay Thai moment. Um, I I think that, like, in Europe, K1 is much, like, K1 is king. 
Like, you know, like when I said like that, I'm a K1 coach, it's like, I'm a K1 coach by default because like, you know, I've, I, I, I train at a commercial gym that like does have like a Muay Thai program, but also most of their fighters and they're like, they have professional fighters and stuff like that at the gym. Like they fight K1, you know, like, um, and you know, in Europe, K1 is definitely the striking sports King, you know? So, um, when I like, you know, in the U S however, I think that, I think that Muay Thai is probably more popular than K1 at the moment. Like a lot of people like that I train with here in Europe, they talk about how Muay Thai used to be so much more popular in Europe and how like K1 has sort of taken it over, like taken over, like, you know, it's popularity in the fight sports, like at least in the stand-up striking sports. But for Americans, how would you explain to them the differences in rules between K1 and Muay Thai? I mean, I think it would have to depend on like the system, like are the like you know what the judges are looking for in that particular like uh, you know event. Um, but I mean, I would say you know I always tell people like if you're talking about um, you know like beyond fight promotion, if you're talking about like uh, like the specific rules of engagement with Muay Thai, you know then there's in K1, you can't clinch for more than three seconds. And like, you know, K1 is much more like heavy boxing oriented. Um, and like, whereas Muay Thai is like a lot more focused on kicks and knees and elbows and clinching. K1 doesn't allow elbows, right? No, it doesn't. Like the, the only like thing in Muay Thai that K1 doesn't allow at all is elbows. Like clinching and sweeps are possible in K1, but they have to be done within like, like very short period of time. Like, so if you like, if you're in K1 and you fall into the clinch, you've got three seconds to like execute your knees and like, you know what I mean? Like, and sweeps if that's what you're going for. Right. I mean, I don't know, like if you know this or not, but for any of your listeners, many of them probably do know this, but if they don't like K1 was dramatically altered, like, uh, was it? 10 years ago because of Buakal, because like um, at the time they allowed um, the clinch to stay for like a longer period. And Buakal became like so dominant because he would get people in the clinch and just like smash them with knees and they didn't know what to do because like stand up clinching is like really not something that any of the other like K1 styles that like kind of fall into the umbrella of K1 have, you know, like, and you know, they just had a fighter come in that was so dominant that they really had to literally change the rules about it. So yeah, since then there's a three second rule when it comes to clinching. I remember that moment because back then, if you just called Muay Thai, K1, all of the kickboxing, nobody cared. Whereas now, ever since they changed the clinch rules, people are very adamant. No, no, no. I don't do kickboxing. I do Muay Thai. Yeah. Because that was such a huge shift. Yes, it involves kicking and punching, but that is such a huge aspect of Muay Thai. To take that away, you can't even consider it the same sport. I think that's how a lot of people felt afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I I think that I, I think that there's definitely a lot of that, and and I I I think that um, there's definitely like a lot of bitterness because especially since people are watching K1 like grow in popularity, um, and people who like Muay Thai. Um, uh, who or who are Muay Thai like practitioners, like 
don't like to see the art form that they care about, like kind of like, uh, be forced to like go by the wayside, you know? So, uh, yeah, that, that's definitely like, I think was a big moment. And I, I think that like, you know, nowadays I see that like, you know, if you want, like in Europe, for example, if you want to train Muay Thai, like you've got to be very specific about it. You know, like there's not very many gyms that like, that like you walk into and like, it's just a Muay Thai curriculum. Like the gym that I train at is amazing. And like, you know, the head coach, like this dude, Tilo Schneider is a rad coach. Um, but like, you know, and they've got great fighters there, but like whenever I'm sparring and like, I just like lock onto somebody in the clinch, like I would say like 95% of the time, the person like, like just like stretches their arms out. Like they're like, I don't know what this dude's doing. Like, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck, you know, like, and I'm just immediately able to just like dominate them because like, they're like, so just totally taken aback. Like I have no idea what's happening. And like, and it's really funny because usually the coach is like, like has to tell them like, no, you got to clinch with him. He's a Muay Thai fighter. (laughs) And like, these dudes don't have any idea. They don't know how to do it because they're gearing fighters towards the thing that they need to do, which is K1, you know, like, cause they're competing in K1. Whereas like, I'm, you know, like I'm not concerned about entering competitions in K1 necessarily. Like I will probably have a couple of K1 fights, but like, I'm looking for Muay Thai fights and I'm like old enough that like, I'm, you know, I'm 41. Like I'm not looking for like, you know, uh, to become a champion or anything like that. Like, you know, I was, it'd be amazing to get like a belt or a title or whatever. But like, my goal is just to like fight as much as my pokey ass can until like, you know, like my body gives out on it, you know, (laughs) and to have fun doing it. So of course I'm going to take more Muay Thai fights because I don't, you know, like I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to take a shitload of fights so that I can like, you know, advance or whatever. And it's not just a clinch, I guess, for people listening. The rules, if you look at it, it's not that there's the elbow and the clinch, but beyond that also what makes them different is the judging criteria, right? And the aesthetics are downstream from the judging criteria. So like you were mentioning before with K1, they emphasize boxing more because the judging likes boxing more. Whereas in Muay Thai, they like kicks and varieties of kicks more, especially like kicks to the body more. Totally, yeah. So then you have to like watching a lot of kicks versus let's say you like watching more 80% hands and 20% kicks with K1, right? So it's also about catering to different audiences. I, yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. Like, um, I think that like, you know, the thing for me that I like, um, I like both, honestly. But like, I prefer Muay Thai just because like, there's just so much more diversity in the fight in my to my mind you know um like whether it be like with the amount of kicks and the amount of elbows um and knees and like well with the fact that there are elbows and with the amount of knees and the clinch there's just so much more going on in my mind than in k1 um but like again i do like k1 like you know i'm not like necessarily a huge mma fan myself and like and i'm probably the worst when it comes to like um uh paying attention to like fight sports like overall you know like i watch a lot of fights but it's almost all on youtube and like they're always old you know it's like like i'm not like paying attention to what's happening in the sport like as the, like every single day 
You know, like I watch, like I've got UFC fight pass and like, I mostly like use it to watch like the Muay Thai stuff, like the, you know, like that they have there and they haven't really added much to it lately. Actually, uh, in sticking with Europe, then moving from martial arts to music, there was a moment here where on the radio, they were playing a lot of music from the Czech Republic. And a lot of it was like rock and punk fused with polka. Yeah. It was this very like happy sounding rock music. So in your time in the Czech Republic, would you say that the Czech Republic had this kind of sound that also fused polka music or isn't the Czech Republic where polka came from? Well, I mean, the polka, um, I think the polka arguably it's, it's, I don't, I don't know if, if you could say that polka is from the Czech Republic or from Poland. Um, but like, okay. So central European folk music sounds like that. Ah. So like, if you listen to central European folk music, like you're going to hear the polka. And when you listen to like punk music and rock music that comes from those regions, you can definitely hear the polka. There's like, there's this uh, phenomenon, or I don't know if I should call it a phenomenon, but there's a thing called Deutsche Punk, like Deutsche Punk. And like, and it's, you know, the German punk scene from like the 80s. And it's very, very umba, 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 umba. Like, um, German people don't hear it uh, the way that, for example, like I hear it you know, uh, but like, or you hear it clearly, like, but like, you know, if I say to a Czech person, like, you know, that, um, like, which is like a famous, like old, like, you know, Czech, uh, punk band, like from the seventies and eighties, like that was, you know, uh, if I tell them that they sound kind of like Czech folk music or, or polka, like people will look at me like I'm a, I'm a freak. Because in their mind, it's like the furthest thing from that music, but it really sounds a lot like that. Like, and because it's because of the meter, like the, like, and the, like the bounce, you know, like that it has is very like, you know, when you think of polka, you think of like, like, and it's really distinct in those, like in, in several types of music that come out of that like that region. So it's become such a part of the social fabric of music and it's such a default that they don't even hear it anymore in their music. Yeah. I mean, I think that like there are some people who listen to like uh, Led Zeppelin and don't hear the blues, mm. you know, like I just, I think that that's the thing that, that, that happens when you disassociate something that comes from like one place, you know, like you just sort of, uh, I don't know, like, uh, like there's a lot of things that are ostensibly like coming from a country or country music derived that like people just don't even think about, you know, like as being a part of country music, you know, like, or coming from country music. Like, I mean, the Eagles are probably the most famous country rock band of all time. And I think that a lot of Eagles fans like have no idea that they're like considered to be a country rock band, you know, like it's like, they just don't even hear it. Cause it's like, you know, they don't associate the things that they like with things that come from a different part of their culture that they've like tried to disassociate themselves from you think about like one band or one like form of music as being sort of distasteful or like coming from a totally different, like, even if you don't hate it, but it comes from such a different part 
of like your culture to your mind that you don't hear its influence on something that like is is current. And not that the Led Zeppelin or the Eagles are current. I mean, I know I'm old, but I'm not that fucking old. Uh, but. <laughs> no, I think you're just giving famous examples because people do it all the time. And they're not even aware of this unconscious bias that they have where they might be looking down on other parts of music and they don't even know. Yeah. I mean, people are looking down on all sorts of shit because of unconscious bias all the time. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, true. people are very un like unsuccessfully silencing their inner cop, like, uh, constantly, you know, like all over the world. Yeah. I used to live in Oregon during the nineties and Beastie Boys was very popular there, but I lived in LA before. So I knew Beastie Boys as a rap group. Right. Right. And so I understood that they also did other types of music. They did punk. But whenever I would mention to people I knew in Oregon who are all white, because Oregon is very white, that, oh, that's a rap group, they would just get so offended, which spoke to a lot of their unconscious bias about black music. Yeah. Which at the time, because I was young, I didn't understand what that was, but I was like, why are you so defensive about this? Why <laughs> does this upset you so much, right? I mean, if, if you don't agree, you just say, oh, I don't agree, but you're like getting mad about it, which says that there's something more going on, right? Well, I mean, there's like, but even if like, you know, obviously they're listening to like, check your head or ill communication and like, yeah. How do they not hear the hip hop in that? Because they don't want to hear it. Well, yeah, they just, I guess they just don't want to hear it. Like, do you not hear the hip hop in Rage Against the Machine? Like, are you crazy? Oh, that was like a big thing too <laughs> in Oregon. <laughs> so when I saw a lot of these like kind of alternative fascists showing up in Oregon, I'm like, yeah, I know exactly where that came from. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I lived in, in Portland for uh, a couple of years also. Um, and so like, uh, I think it's it's always been really interesting to me because, like, I think that people think of and, and remember, like, I travel all over the world and like yeah. I travel by van predominantly unless I've got to fly to another continent, you know, um, like so I've seen the middle of every single part of the United States and a lot of other places as well. I I think that like the first time that like I realized how many Nazis there were in Oregon. Like it was a little bit of a shock because of the fact that like I, in my mind had always associated Portland with like, you know, the West coast, you know, like, and I associated the West coast with like the hippie movement and later on grunge, you know, like, so it just like, it filled a specific space in my mind, but I was only like, I was still in my teens by the time I realized like how fucking crazy it was there. There are hardcore leftists there. There's a lot of hardcore leftists, but oh hell yeah! But I think all of them had to like deal with their own unconscious biases, right, and grow out of it. But it is a very white culture. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, Oregon is a very white place, and there's specific reasons for that. Still, I mean, that I think affect you know like now, uh, but like it's an interesting thing because like, you know, where I come from, I think that maybe one of the reasons why it didn't shock me so much and that like, it made more sense is because I come from like, a like quote unquote, cool city in like a state that nobody thinks is a cool state, but like <laughs> the city, like, and I'm sorry, Bloomington, like I love you and I love everybody that I'm, you know, like all of my people in Bloomington, but like Bloomington has got its head directly up its ass about how cool it is. You know, like it thinks that it's this like very progressive, like, you know, like left bastion of like culture and acceptance. But like 
it's in the middle of like one of the most conservative states in the entire United States, which means that like, you know, like, yes, it has a large queer community, but that, that community is constantly under siege, you know, like by like, you know, like right wing, you know, like fascist chuds, you know what I mean? Like, and, and like that scene exists in a city that's small enough that like, those people only have to do a few circles around the block if they want to before they find a victim, you know, like a target, you know, like, so like, you know, the privilege of believing that like our city is this amazing place is the privilege of like a, a white dude who like likes to pretend like they, you know what I mean? Like they're exceptionally woke too you know, like when really they don't see like the negative impact that like their perspective has and how much fucked up shit is going on that they just can't even accept because they're not on a level where they don't, where they experience it, you know, and they're not intelligent or empathetic enough to listen to their peers. Like when they say, Hey, this is a thing. You know what I mean? Like for them to go, oh, it must be because you're telling me, like, why would you lie to me about this? Yeah. You know, it's like, it's, I mean, I don't know. You have to see this all the time. Like you see people who are just like, who are like, I'm not experiencing it. So it can't be real. I mean, running a leftist martial arts group and doing this podcast and talking to so many people. I sometimes call it leftist wolves or lefty wolves because, you know, the iconography of the wolf is so popular on the right with chuds, right? I say we have our own version of that because we all come from this kind of macho, chauvinistic, reactionary culture. And so a lot of those traits can even replicate itself on the left. They might not be like that about everything, but they might not be aware, like going back to talking about unconscious biases, they might not be aware they're being reactionary in certain ways because sometimes they think of left politics like religion, like, oh, I've accepted left politics into my heart. So now I'm cured of every reactionary tendency I have. And it's like, no, it doesn't work that way. I still know a lot of leftist men who won't go to therapy because they're too tough guy, you know? Yeah. I mean, I understand that. Like, you know, I was, I, I think that like, you know, I was always pretty like, uh, default femme. And as a result, like, of after years of like getting like kind of shit on for it, I tried to like switch over to like being very masculine at some point, uh. which I don't think that it ever really like worked. Like, I don't think I was ever fooling anybody, you know what I mean? Like, but like, there was definitely a time in my life where like I wasn't willing to like accept a lot of parts about myself just because like I was so, I don't know, I heard it from so many people for so long and I almost like I don't know I was like fighting against it because I didn't like I didn't want it to fit because I knew that it like somewhere wasn't supposed to be okay like even when I was like yeah I'm not like homophobic you know what I mean like but I didn't want to like be like even like open about the fact that like you know I like men sometimes also like that I'm attracted to like you know like basically like all different types of people and that that's okay, you know, like that, like, you know, I can like, like I had so many people call me names, these like, you know, like these like very like definitive, like, like signifiers of homosexuality that like, 
even though I knew that I was attracted to men, I couldn't admit it to myself because like, you know, like I had had them say it to me so many times that I wanted to deny it at times of my life. Like, because like that made me less of a man. Or even if I could tell, say to myself, like, yeah, I like boys too. You know what I mean? Like I didn't want to admit it outwardly as well, because like, I didn't want them to think of me as less than, you know, like, I mean, and part of my personal like journey of like mental health recovery and like everything has been tied up with like me just like realizing it's like, you know, like being able to be quiet about this is a privilege and like, I don't need it, you know, like, because like, it's not helping anybody. In fact, it's harming people because I'm like, cause I'm taking away the visibility of another person who's open about that. I always say, and this is something I'm talking about and writing about more is how it's not just about radical politics, but it's also about being radical with yourself as far as like radical acceptance of yourself. You can't just do the radical politics in a vacuum. It also has to come with a lot of like internal work, healing. Some members of the Southpaw community call it radical softness because we're so used to being hard on ourselves, but yeah. learning to just accept ourselves. And uh, that in itself isn't a cure-all. It's just talking about that there is this healing from trauma component to all this, to left politics. Or at least there should be. Yeah, there should be. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. At least there should be that way. Yeah, I don't know if it is, but it should be. I think that it can be. I, You know, I think that this is like, this ties back into like martial arts because like, uh, you know, a lot of people... Uh, I've been accused of like, you know, like of making people feel bad about themselves or whatever because of my dedication or like I've had some of my fans be like, you know, like, I don't like this. This is like hyper masculine stuff. Oh, martial arts. Yeah. And, and like, and I'm always kind of like, Hey, like I understand that it's perceived that way. And like, and I do understand why you perceive it that way, because I think that like, you know, with the like with the dominance of like right wing, um, you know, like politics inside of martial arts and, and attitudes, like um, it's seemingly a very hyper-masculine environment and it can be like no question, like the commercial side of like, of martial arts is very much entrenched in that like uh, way of thinking um, and behaving. Um, but like, if you, like approach it from the side of like of healing which is the side that i approached it from like and if you approach it from the side of like like i don't know it's like the way that i approach like a new student when i like when i meet someone for the first time and like and i'm talking to them at the gym and like i'm trying to make them feel comfortable you know like i have protocols that like i go through you know, like if I'm showing them something like I, you know, like I try to like figure out what kind of stuff they're interested in so that I can like relate to that part of them. Like if I have to touch them to show them a movement, I ask first for permission. You know what I mean? Like if I can touch them, like, and like, and if they say no, then I'm like, okay, no problem. Let's just keep trying it this way. Or I try to like, you know, go around it. I try to find the place where I can like approach that person to make sure that they're comfortable enough that they can like start learning this thing. You know what I mean? Like, and then like, hopefully that person eventually, and I see it a lot 
because these are people who I work with, like they, and have over time, like they become a positive force in that gym or whatever gym they end up in. You know what I mean? Like where they're like doing these kinds of protocols too. And like, you know, we can talk about like martial arts, like, and about this, like from many different angles, I like to think of it as reclaiming it, you know, like, because I feel like many things, the right has co-opted something that came from like the like proletariat, like that came from like working, struggling people to like, to like basically cope like with like and combat the oppression that they were experiencing from those people, you know what I mean? Like, and that's been stolen from them, you know what I mean? Like, and in some ways I like to think of it as like kind of uh, reclaiming it, you know, like, because I believe that if you talk to people like on a way that like is fully with respect and like, and you come from a coaching angle, like where you're talking to people with full respect and as if they're a peer and like, you're making sure that like, you're, you know, being conscious of them and their body language and also like where they're comfortable and you're not, you know what I mean? Like overstepping any bounds and you're not acting like a hyper-masculine asshole, then like martial arts can be a place for anybody in many ways, you know, like, and like, and that it can be a place of healing for people who like are, I mean, what's the word that I'm looking for, for people who have suffered abuse, people who are not naturally violent, because I'm not naturally a violent person. I consider myself a pacifist, you know, like it can be a place for people like that, you know, like for people who don't want conflict, for people who like merely like want to be able to know how to deal with conflict. I think a lot of people don't realize or recognize or maybe unwilling to recognize that a lot of people come to the martial arts after the bad thing has happened, after the trauma has happened. Yep. There is a lot of hyper-masculinity, but to say that's the only thing or that's the only type of person that goes into martial arts washes away all the people who are coming there to reclaim their bodies. And I think you see a lot of that with women in martial arts who go there because they're trying to reclaim their body. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the most depressing things that I see in gyms is like when I see that woman walk into the gym and I see like the sleaziest piece of shit in the gym, just immediately like, be like, Hey, you know what I mean? Like, what's up? You know, like want to work together. And like, um, it's always this moment where I'm just like, no, and then yeah. I never, inevitably, I never see that woman at the gym ever again, you know, like, or, you know, enter any, you know what I mean? Like type of human being that might enter the gym that they end up just getting paired with that, that wrong person on their first day when they walk through the door of that gym, you know, like, and then they just never walk through those doors again and possibly never do it again. And then they always have a negative like impression of it, which makes sense, but it like breaks my heart because like, I know that there's another way. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on discord. 
But more importantly, you will help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. How did you end up teaching Muay Thai? Or K1? Or how did you end up teaching, period? Uh, I always knew that I was going to coach. Um, I started when I was 35. And in my mind, I was like, um, I was like, I'm never going to like be a fighter. Right. Like, um, but I also very quickly, like I had a lot of physical issues like that made it difficult for me to like do the movements. And in order to do the movements, I really had to work on them, which kind of gave me like, uh, I would say like, a a heightened understanding of like the body mechanic of say like the round kick, you know what I mean? Like, uh, or, you know, any, any insert, any technique there. It's like, I had a hard time getting to it. So by the time I was like doing it competently, I'd put in a lot of work and had to really like think about why it was that I wasn't able to do it properly and then how to do it, you know, um, which gave me a, capacity to talk to other people about how to do it and i immediately saw them having success based upon the advice that i was giving you know and like once i realized that like uh i sort of had a bit of like you know more applicable knowledge than like the other like you know beginners or novices i should say that were at the gym like and i realized that i had helped a couple people i sort of got addicted to it a little bit like and i don't mean like that like oh i gotta do this but i just like i was like wow i really like doing this and so um i just basically like set about getting as much supplemental training as i possibly could like and that meant like doing drop-ins at gyms like when i was on tour at whatever city i was in so that i could like if there was a coach that i really like wanted to learn from you know like um and making sure that like any of my friends who I already had who were like also training that like I was like meeting with them as much as possible. And I was like living at the gym, you know, like, I mean, you know, I, and then I decided I would go to Thailand and train. Tell me about that. What's training like in Thailand? Mm, man. Uh, well, I trained in Bangkok at a gym called eminent air, um, which is a very clinch heavy gym. That's where your familiarity with the clinch came from then. Uh, in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say, cause it's like every day, every session starts with 30 minutes of clinching. And so like, so I basically like, I've been training for two years and like, or yeah, yeah. I've been training for two years and like all of a sudden I was just like, uh, smashed into like 30 minutes of clinching with like top level, like, uh, fighters in like a, you know, like a really good, like, you know, clinching gym basically. Uh, and yeah, that's where I learned how to do it. Like that's where I really kind of got the bug, you know, like to clinch at the beginning. Was it really tough on your neck? All the clinching? Yeah. I mean, not really, not in Thailand. Uh, I think that like most of my really, like the sessions that are really hard on my neck are with like inexperienced Western clinch, like people. <laughs> oh, 
talk about that. Okay. So like a Western clincher, like somebody who's not comfortable in the clinch is going to like wrench your neck around and like use their muscles like in the clinch. Whereas like um, an experienced clincher like uses their muscles, but it's more about positioning, you know? I mean, you know, you train BJJ, like, you know, it's like a lot of it's about taking up the space, you know, like, or creating space, you know, so that you can take up the space that you want to, you know? Um, and rarely does that require like full on ripping and tearing and like, you know, the bench pressing of another human's body for an extended period of time, right? Um, most people who start out, they don't realize that like, you know, you like, you really want to just like use your strength, like right when it needs to at that like last moment, like you want to keep yourself active, you know, like you want to make sure that like, you're not like limp on people necessarily like, you know, but you're also not trying to like be using all of your strength, you know, it's like, uh, so yeah. Clinching with Westerners generally, like, unless they're, like, really comfortable with the clinch, like, you know, there's a lot of, like, uh, you know, twisting and turning and using all of the muscles possible. Whereas in Thailand, when you're clinching with somebody who's, like, a top-level clincher, like, it's really just, like, so flow. It's flow. You know, like, you're just moving together. And, like, every time somebody moves into a new position, like, you just move your body into that position you know what i mean like to like counteract it and and then you try to do something and put yourself into a place where you would like to be and you you know like uh also like you know like uh experienced clinchers are going to throw a lot of knees you know just as much as they're going to like you know be moving position around whereas like uh oftentimes like people who are beginning clinching they're in such like fear uh and like and they're in that fight or flight uh space in their head and they get so stressed out that they forget to breathe and they get like really really like stressed out and so it causes them to like uh jerk and like move their bodies like in larger motions um so yeah i mean uh and so they forget to like i don't know knee a lot of the time they'll start like an inexperienced clincher will try to punch you in the clinch, which like, I'm not saying that there's no space for punching or dirty boxing in the clinch, but like, you know, generally like an experienced clincher is going to rely on like, you know, like uh, maneuvering and like, and timing of knees and like, you know, uh, and elbows as opposed to like, you know, trying to like uh, hit you in the gut with like, a body shot that like is coming, has like no room basically to move. When you show up in the morning, what time are you showing up and what's the training day like? Well, I mean, I, I was staying at the gym. So like, um, I would basically get up and I would be awake for like 30 minutes. Uh, and like, I would just like, you know, put on my shorts and go downstairs and like put on my sneakers and like, start running that seems like a hallmark of all the gyms the first thing you do in the morning is run yeah yeah i think that that's pretty typical um but yeah like i just uh i would basically like put on my running shoes 
and like run the like you know whatever half a block from where like you know uh the boarding part of the gym was to like the actual gym itself and like i would go there and then like i would see who was there because i was almost always the first person or maybe the second person there um when i was there um so like uh yeah i would just see who else was there and if there was somebody else there we would start running together and if there wasn't anybody there i would start stretching a little bit and like you know and then see if somebody showed up and if they didn't then i would just start running so then it's like running uh i would usually run like at least a 5k sometimes i would run 10 uh depending on like how active the gym seemed like it was getting because like yeah i would start at 7 a.m and like technically the morning training session goes from like 7 to like uh 10 or 11 depending on like you know who shows up and when they want to do what they want to do and like yeah so um but everything hinged on like when the first 30 minutes of clinching would happen (laughs) so (laughs) i would basically run and then i would run until like i like noticed that people were skipping rope and depending on whether or not i wanted to skip rope for like 15 minutes uh, i would either continue running for a little while and then duck in for like you know five to 10 minutes of skipping rope (laughs) or I would go in and skip rope for the amount of time that other people were doing it and then get ready and then go in and clinch for 30 minutes. And then clinching led to, um, different stuff. It really just depends on like what they wanted to do. Cause I would go to the morning and the evening session and they would really moderate like what was happening on which one, because not everybody's going to like both, you know, like, I mean, obviously like, you know, if you're staying there and you're like a Muay Thai tourist, staying at the gym like probably you're going to go to like both sessions especially if you paid for them already or at least when you can physically handle it because training twice a day for like two three-hour sessions is too much for some like a lot of people uh, or maybe even anybody <laughs> i should say uh to do all the time but yeah um you know it would lead to clinching would lead to either sparring or like your crew who was assigned to you would pull you out and and you would work pads um and like then they would send you back into like um into sparring and if you're assigned a crew is that person your teacher for the duration pretty much yeah yeah um yeah i mean i i ended up working with two crews while i was there actually three because at the end a different crew showed up and i realized that i kind of liked him uh a lot you know like and so like i kind of like try i gravitated towards him like like the last like week that i was there um um but yeah like i was i worked with like one crew predominantly and then the the ajarn worked with me like he would work with me at least two or three times a week also so i had mostly two coaches that i was working with and who was that yeah like ajarn is a master right so um like a lot of people this is actually a funny thing like um, my, my gym that I train at in Bloomington, um, is like delineated from an Ajahn Chai. He's really famous for bringing Muay Thai, uh, and popularizing it in the United States in like the sixties and seventies. He's like the head of the, the TBA, the Thai Boxing Association that has like the huge tournament in Iowa, uh, every year. Um, anyway, um, like he's, 80 something now you know like but his you know like a lot of people don't realize like uh, even at my school they think that that's his first name 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I'm just like, no, he's Master Chai. <laughs> like, like, and it's so funny because like people who have been training with him, like for years, they don't know anything about Thai culture. They've been training Thai boxing in the US. You know what I mean? Like from this guy and like, they don't know that his name like is like they, or they don't realize that Ajarn is a title. You know what I mean? Like it means master. <laughs> like, uh, like they understand that crew isn't like, it means coach, you know what I mean? Like, but for some reason they don't understand that Ajarn is, is like a master. So yeah, Ajarn is master crew is coach. That's it. Long story short. Sorry for making poking fun at my home gym. They earned it though. <laughs> so then, uh, does the master uh, try to work with all the people there, or was that something you set up with them? Uh, I think that like the the Ajarn like would work with more with like dedicated people. Um, I think you know, like if I had to guess, probably you know, he just noticed that I was there all the time and that I was coming for like at least two and a half hours every day. Like, I mean, every session, you know, um, because like, you know, some days every once in a while I would only come for like two hours at a session, but usually I would show up first and I would be one of the last people to leave. So I'd be there for at least three hours. Um, and like, you know, I, that goes a long way when, you know, like you're a Western doofus who's like, you know, showing up and like i'm sure that there are a lot of muay thai tourists who show up and like you know they're not necessarily there to learn they're there to train but also they're there to like get drunk and fuck or whatever and do you know like party and do whatever fun stuff they want to do like i literally like lived at the gym almost the whole time i was there like i mean i have friends who live in bangkok like that i know from like um you know like uh, anti-fascist communities in like in Europe who moved there like to become professional fighters, you know, like that I would go and meet up with and stuff and like hang out and have dinner with. But mostly when I was there, I was just like <laughs> at the gym, you know, like I would go out and, and like forage for street food and then like come straight back and like just be at the gym. So does it break up into you run, you do clinch, you do some sparring and then you do pad work. And is that how the class format is? Or is there some other stuff on top of that? Oftentimes, then you go over to the bag and usually like, you know, like the, the crew, your crew will watch you sparring. And then like, and like, I mean, oftentimes like I would be sparring and like my crew would just be standing there shaking his head, just like in total utter disappointment and then, like <laughs> pull me out and be like, you know, be like, Oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. Like, do this, do this, you know what I mean? Like, and show me things that they thought like I really needed to work on, which was everything. Um, but like, and then after that, like they'd send me over to the bag and like, and, and basically tell me things that they wanted me to see predominantly while I was doing backgrounds. And like, and so I would do the backgrounds and then some days they would be like, they would m make us do core training also, you know, like, so like numbers of work of, of like, uh, you know, sit-ups and push-ups and, uh, like, and planks and lifting weights and stuff like that. But most of the curriculum, like, while I was there was, like, just running, clinch, like, sparring, heavy pad rounds, bag work. And pretty much in that order. I guess that's one aspect that can't be replicated here in the U.S. is the personal attention. 
here you'd have to like pay extra so it becomes cost prohibitive where then sometimes like it's the richest people end up getting the best training and you see this all the time in BJJ a lot of the richest kids because they start young become the best because their parents could afford all the private lessons for them totally whereas over there their pedagogy is reliant on personal attention yeah absolutely and that's actually one of the biggest things that differs with the way that I like um I coach other people um and even like when I'm coaching at like a commercial gym um like I always try to like um to incorporate elements of like what I would do on a like at a training session in Thailand at least some of the things and one of the main things that I always try to do is like I try to at least get like 5 minutes with every student that's at a class you know like where I at least like talk to them about like their strong points and also like the things that they need to work on and how to work on them and how to make them better and then I also like I offer like free privates all the time like i mean like i will charge people for privates but generally speaking like, i mean i have some like some young students that i like visit their houses and and teach them and like you know because they you know their parents don't have time to take them to the gym or whatever and blah 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 like and i charge them but like i literally like i charge like 15 bucks an hour like i'm like it's 15 dollars for an hour and like and 20 for an hour and a half you know like because i don't this is like something that i have a problem with it's like i don't i hate the gatekeeping aspect of martial arts like i hate authoritarianism like i don't like hierarchical like structures i i dislike them intensely you don't like a thousand dollar private lesson <laughs> Yes. I don't even like the $90 pri private lesson. <laughs> and I'm not joking. No, there I, is know. A lot of I know you're not joking, dude. Like, <laughs> I know. Like, but like, I, I, like, I also don't do this for a living. Muay Thai is my hobby, Sam. Like, it's like, it's a, it's a hobby that I do equally as much as my career, but it's like, it's not my primary source of income or my source of income at all. Like, I mean, I make an extra 20 bucks here and there and like, I like, you know, buy a, a couple of beers and some ice cream. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I, that's not my, my source of income. Like I play shows and like sell records and t-shirts and stuff like that. Like that's how I make a living. And even when I do that, I try to like make sure that it's accessible to people. So like, I'm not like concerned about making money so much as I'm concerned about making sure that people get better. You know, like, and that people are enjoying themselves and that people feel safe. You know what I mean? Like, that's like, for me, that's like the thing that I'm, that I'm there for. And like, you know, I just want for martial arts to be accessible to people. And like, and again, this like, you know, comes back to like my belief in like assemblage politics, because like, I've got this skill that like, granted, I haven't been doing it for as long. I'm definitely not the greatest fighter i'm not the greatest coach like i will be the first to admit that like i don't know everything you know what i mean like but like i'm a person who has dedicated a very like thousands and thousands of hours over the last six years towards this thing you know and like and so i have more knowledge than other people and like and i'm more than willing to share that knowledge with other people because like in the end like i know that they could potentially be better 
for having that knowledge that they, you know, like could benefit from it. And that maybe eventually, you know, like they're going to teach me about some other thing that I don't know about, you know, like, I mean, my students teach me about things that like I never knew. And I say students, I actually shouldn't say students because a lot of the time it's like a cooperative effort, you know, like where I'm training with like other fighters and I just know about certain things that like, you know, like they don't know yet. You know, like, and I'm just like helping them or I'm seeing things with a coach's eye because like I've sort of formed my entire journey around having a coach's eye, you know, like, and I don't know, like, like they teach me things all the time. So to me, it's like an exchange. And even, even like the very first, like, I mean, I have an eight year old kid that I train and like, you know, I don't speak German very well. And like, and, you know, he speaks to me in German and it gives me an opportunity like to teach him in a language that like I don't have mastery of. So even, you know, like, even that isn't like is an exchange. And in my opinion, in many ways, it's an equal exchange, you know, like so the way I look at it is just that I'm, you know, I'm giving something to somebody else, to other people, to a community as well. And that community is giving something back to me, even if they don't realize it, you know, like even like the student that I have is like, that's like the first, like their first day walking into the gym. And I'm just like showing them like, you know, how to throw a cross and a hook. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, even just doing that, I get something from, from it because while I'm showing them how to do that, like, you know, how to throw the cross and the hook, I'm thinking about the cross and the hook. So I'm thinking about how my cross and the hook, my cross and hook will be better you know, like in the future. And I'm also thinking about how I can better explain it to the next person that I have to explain those body movements to, you know, like, and what makes this one person different than everybody else that I've coached so far? Like, what have, what am I gaining from talking to that person? And like, how am I going to be able to help other people going into the future? Like, it's just, to me, it's so fully cooperative and like, and makes so much sense to like everything that I believe in that like, you know, I don't feel like I, I don't know, like, I don't know. I just get so much out of it. Because of Spotify and because everything has gone digital, how do modern musicians, how do contemporary musicians make their living off of music now? <sighs> how did it used to work before COVID and how is it working now? Um, before COVID, I played at least six months of shows every year which would take me across the United States twice and to Europe once. So you made your living from touring. Yeah. I'm a traveling t-shirt and record store. So it's not as much about digital downloads. And I mean, digital downloads are very marginal uh, amount of money. Spotify is virtually uh, non-existent. I mean, you know, like I think you need like 6,000 streams. Like, I think I make like, yeah, like five dollars from six thousand streams or something like that. You need that many streams for five dollars. Yeah, it's really <laughs> like uh, the economy of streaming is really uh, almost non-existent. You know, like in a lot of ways. Not saying that it doesn't exist because it is money, but it's like it's not a lot. I mean, I get some money from radio play, um, especially like in the UK. Uh, like the BBC pays really well if they play something on the radio. Um, like they pay you like 50 pounds per spin and like, you know, that's like $70. 
So, yeah. So, like, if you get, like, even four spins, you know what I mean? Like, on the BBC, like, that's 200 and something dollars, you know? Yeah. Uh, but so, anyway, pre-COVID, lots of touring, lots of grinding. Um, and then post-COVID, like, streams. Uh, and I was lucky enough to be in Europe and be able to play some socially distanced shows, um, at reduced capacity clubs over the summer. Um, but like my main revenue source since like, uh, since COVID has been basically like, uh, doing specialized stuff for fans. Um, like, there was like during the first lockdown, I was offering like Zoom, like Zoom concerts for like single people, you know, like for like them and their family, you know. Um, so I would like basically say like, hey, like I'll call you for 30 minutes on Zoom and I'll play the four songs you most want to like hear and I'll just talk to you, you know, like and people would be like, how much? And I'd be like, how much is that worth to you? You know, like, and some people were like, I can give you like 25 and I'd be like, cool, no big deal. And some people were like, I can give you a hundred and I'd be like, awesome. And some people would be like, I'll give you 200 bucks. And I'd be like, awesome. You know, like, so like, no matter what, like it ends up working out because people end up paying what they can afford. Like, and I'm always explicitly like upfront about it. I'm like, look, like, I don't want you to pay me more than you can actually afford to pay. You know, like if you can afford something be like this, this much money because you're, you know, like, because you have money and like, you know, you're doing well and you're not like, you know, worried about like where your next meal is going to come from or how you're going to pay your rent, then like, you know, then please like as whatever you can give great, you know, like, um, but there are other people out there who I'm doing this for, for free or for almost nothing. And like, you know, like if, somebody pays me more that subsidizes other people, you know, like in my mind, you know, being me being able to just like do it for somebody else, you know? Um, and also subsidizes me being able to play lots of online benefits where I'm not making any money at all, you know, like, uh, so, um, I would say that that's like predominantly where my income has come from though, is like playing online streaming events where people were tipping or where like somebody, you know, like, you know, like where I was giving people a private concert on Zoom or um, Jitsi uh, and like, you know, then uh, I like, you know, I did Valentine's Day stuff, which was pre-COVID, but like um, where I like played whatever somebody's sweetheart's favorite song of mine and like sent like a personalized greeting, you know, it's like, like that's. And I, and I just did this thing with, you know, Christmas where I wrote fans, like I wrote 20 songs for different fans. And again, that was like sliding scale. So some people, people paid very little money and some people like one, I mean, one person didn't pay anything and that's totally fine. And then another person like paid like 200 bucks for it, you know, like, and a lot of the songs are like kind of goofy songs. And then I like asked the person, like the person who's ordering it, like, what's your relationship with this person? What are some of the funny things that you've done together? What do you want me to tell them like from this song? Like if it's a love song, like what do you want them to know? Like what would you like them to know and have them hear me sing? You know what I mean? Like what is it? And so like 
there's like criteria and I just write those songs. And yeah, that's like my thing that I do now in order to make money is like, I just try to figure out like how I can like make my fans happy and like give them something that they, you know, like other artists maybe wouldn't uh, and make sure that they can afford it. And like, yeah, that's basically it. You know, like I, um, it's just another type of, of like work, you know, like rather than driving six hours, uh, to get to another show and then setting up and sound checking and like waiting for the crowd to show up and then playing and then tearing down, selling merch for, you know, like an hour after the show and talking to everybody that like wants to talk to me at the merch table and signing everything or whatever, you know, like instead of doing that, like I'm just online, like hanging out and, you know, like, and trying to make sure that like, you know, people know that I'm here and that we can be connected. Being a touring musician sounds a lot like being an indie wrestler where you just go from <laughs> town to town, do a show, and then you set up your booth and you sell your merch and you talk and you sign stuff. Dude, I think that it's very similar. I mean, I like, I learned this very early from like, you know, my, my, proximity to like country music because this is the thing that country musicians do and i think that this is probably why like professional wrestlers do it too um or like you know uh like indie wrestlers um and also stand-up comedians it's like if you don't show fan appreciation then like i in my opinion like like i hate any musician who like doesn't give of themselves to their fans and like that means like if you're not like actually interacting with your fans and it's only a one way thing, you know, like where they're giving you something, you know what I mean? Like they're giving you revenue and you just get to show up and do the thing that you like want to do, which is like get up on stage and get the adoration or whatever, and then walk off and like, just do whatever other thing you want to do for the rest of the day. Like I just don't have, any respect for that if that's what you do every day like everyone's got days where they just can't deal with it and they get on stage and they play and then they go and they get the hell out of there but if like that's what you do every day and like you don't give love back to people who like are supporting you like i don't i i like i just can't handle it you know like it totally fucking depresses the hell out of me and makes me dislike you as an artist like bands that stay in the dressing room and like never go out and interact with their fans like unless you're at the level like where people are going to freak out and mob you and trample you then like there's no reason not to go and say hi you know like there's just not like and people like i don't know people love artists that they've latched onto. And there are people who overstep their boundaries. There are punishers. But even those people still deserve to know that, like, they matter. At least enough to, like, you know, be present. Which is why, like, I try really to be present even online. You know, which is exhausting as hell. Um, and it isn't always my favorite part of the job because I don't necessarily like living in my telephone. You know, like, but, like, it's important. You know, like, in in my opinion... One of the most important things that I do is like, is to like relate to people and talk to them. You know, like I, I'm a musician because my dad is a musician and it's a thing that I was naturally 
like gifted at to start with and that like they fostered in me from a young age. But like the the reason that I did it, like that I really applied myself in it is because it was like the only thing that like a nerdy kid that mostly got bullied, like got praise for, you know what I mean? Like it was the only way that like, you know, people were like, you know, paid attention to me and reacted to me positively when I was young. So like, so when I look at like my trajectory and my reasoning for like wanting to be like a musician, a big portion of that is the desire to be able to connect with other people and actually like interact with them. Like when I was at my worst anxiety, like, like the worst state of like my like anxiety induced depression and like, and like crippling social anxiety, like the kind of thing where I was like running away from like crowds of people, like crying and like not being able to deal one place where I was always comfortable was at the show that I was playing, talking to my fans. It was like one of the only places where I actually got positive human interaction with other people, you know, like, so where I was in a situation where like I was kind of in control and they like wanted to talk to me. So the fact like knowing how much people give to me and how much this like particular thing has given to me in a lot of ways, it's like similar with like my attitude towards Muay Thai, I guess, you know, it's like, I just like want to give back because like, this is the thing that feeds me, you know, like, and I want it to be accessible and I want other people, I want to be accessible. Like I want to be able to like have conversations with other human beings and like, and have an exchange of ideas and like, and friendship and human interaction. So of course I'm going to like show up to the thing that really provides that thing for me. But something you mentioned earlier in passing was the types of fans. And you mentioned sometimes they're punishers. Yeah. What is a punisher? (laughs) I mean, a punisher can doesn't necessarily have to be a fan. They could also be a music industry person. It could be like a band mate, you know, even. Punisher is like someone who doesn't realize that like uh, they're being intrusive and overly so, or that they're monopolizing your time. Oftentimes like a Punisher is very drunk um, and like very like, uh, insistent that they like get a certain amount of face time with you and aren't aware of the fact that there are other people who are also trying to talk to you and like basically like kind of get in the way of everyone else and then oftentimes they repeat the same thing over and over again that's a a typical characteristic of a punisher is this kind of like terms for different types of people you deal with in the industry yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean like i say this like I know I've been a Punisher before. Uh, Everybody, I think, is a Punisher sometimes. There are people who are perpetual Punishers. There are people who are perpetual line steppers. (laughs) And those people, like, are difficult, but, like, they deserve your, like, in my opinion, they still deserve, you know, like, to be talked to and, like, and to uh, be treated with kindness, but they are more difficult. And this doesn't mean like and i'm not trying to say that like for anybody out there hearing this and going oh man i'm sure i did this yeah you probably did don't feel bad everybody (laughs) does at some point everybody is a punisher at some point you know Mm. um so uh if you did it to me in the past and you're listening to this it's it's no big deal the next time we see each other give me a hug and punish me some more it's okay (laughs) something i noticed right away in listening to your music is your voice 
So how did you develop your sound? I guess this doesn't just apply to your singing, but also your songwriting. Well, I mean, a lot of people would say that I'm in the process of always developing my sound, which is something that like is typical for me is that like, I'm always kind of making my uh, style new and different. Like every record that I do, I try to make sure that I'm not doing the same thing more, you know, like again, basically, but the constant I think is my voice and the difference, like, you know, there's difference in my voice and singing in certain songs because, of course, different songs have different contexts, but my voice sounds the same pretty much. But it did have like a pretty drastic change um, in 2014 to 2016 in that time period because I quit smoking and like my throat started healing, you know? So, um, yeah, so like my voice started changing immediately and my, uh, and kind of, um, uh, made me sound a little bit different. I mean, friends of mine were like, whoa, you got a new voice, like when you quit smoking. And and I was like, yeah, I guess I did. And, and the reason is because I have so much more lung capacity and control over my like vocal cords now that like I just am capable of doing different things and um, that I wasn't able to before. So my voice is just more expressive than it was. Like it was a lot more narrow in many ways, like in its capabilities. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, like I've, I've found my style, um, because I knew that I didn't care to sound like anybody else. Um, and like, there are a few people that I really tried to emulate early on. Um, but once I realized how much I was sounding like them, I realized like I figured out ways that I could change what I was doing so that didn't sound like them, you know? Um, like I would write a song. My favorite songwriter probably is a guy named Jason Molina, who unfortunately passed several years ago, but his bands were songs, Ohio and uh, Magnolia electric company. And, um, and there was a time when I would write songs and I would be like, Oh my God, that's just another Jason Molina song. And I'll be like, how do you make this not a Jason Molina song? And I was like, okay, tempo. <laughs> like, how do I make this song? Like, take this song that sounds so much like this person who I revere. And I'm proud of the words and I'm proud of like the melody. How do I make it so that it just doesn't like, you can't tell that it's so influenced by this person. You know, like, and I would just take it into a different space than like that person existed in. You know what I mean? Um, so that's kind of, almost a, a hallmark for me, like a trademark. I mean, like I'll, I take something that I think is something like something else. And I'll be like, how do I make sure that nobody can tell that this is like this? Like, and I'll like just mess with it and write it and rewrite it until like, I know that the thing that I have is like pretty much completely original you know, like, and completely mine. Like, I mean, I've, I probably like, I think it's now six times I've written the sting song along the fields of gold by accident. <laughs> and like, you know, not necessarily an enormous fan of that song, like deliberately, but apparently my subconscious fucking loves it. <laughs> like the melody, I mean, not the lyrics. I've like found that that was like a melody that I just like ended up gravitating towards several times and like i'm just like why why what is up with this and so then i've got to take this song that i know sounds like something else 
and try to make sure that it just doesn't sound anything like that. And then not only that, but I got to make sure that it doesn't sound anything like the other song that I realized had somehow accidentally been influenced by this song, you know? So for me, it's just like a matter of like invention and just like trying to be conscious, uh, not self-conscious, but be conscious of the fact that like, you know, like if I want to make something that's like new, I've got to like work on it all the time until like it sounds new to me. For a lot of people who enjoy singing, they often try to mimic somebody else. But do you think it's best just to like sing the way you naturally sound, the way you talk? I mean, dude, I don't know, man. Like I think that, I think people should sing what they love. Um, I think that people should do the thing that makes them happy. You know, like, I mean, I've got songs, like I've got albums where like they're really full country records and like, you know, like, or bluegrass records and like my twang is like ticked up, you know? Um, and it like, it's not deliberate. It just like comes with the style of music, you know? Um, but like, if you love singing something and you want like, and in your mind, you hear it sung a certain way, like far be it for me to say that you shouldn't sing it that way. Like if you're doing something that makes you happy, like you should just keep fucking doing it. Like, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, maybe that doesn't apply to people who are trying to professionally do something. Um, like if you want to professionally do something, the only piece of advice that I possibly give to you is just do it for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it until like you really know like what it is that you're trying to do. You know, like uh, that's the only thing I can say is, I mean, singing and making music is like every other art and that includes martial arts. Like unless you like spend a lot of time pursuing it, like then you're not going to be good at it and you're not going to have your own way of doing it. You know? Like it's like I don't know, if you're if you're a casual martial artist like, you know, like you probably have somebody who you really really want to be like and like you gravitate towards their like body movements. And like, you're trying to like emulate those all the time. And don't get me wrong. Like that's a really important part of like martial arts um, is like emulations part of it's part of all arts and human interaction. Like you see something that you respect and speaks to you and like you try to do it, you try to replicate it. But eventually, like if you spend enough hours, you take in enough different people's styles and you learn to like accept that everybody else is doing something differently and that like just because they do it differently than you um, or that you've been taught to do it doesn't mean that it's the wrong way to do it. It's just like a different way of doing it. Unless you like spend just like a lot of time, like working on something, you're not going to do it like the way that you do it. You're going to do it the way that other people do it because you're going to be caught up in emulating somebody else. Like if it makes you happy to emulate someone else, then like you should do it. Like you should continue doing that. But if you want to do something your own way, then you just got to like, just keep doing it and doing it and doing it until like you find the place that's your sweet spot. That's a place that like only you do it. So with your new album, Alive in the Hot Zone, what message would you like people to take away from it? I want people to be more analytic and like analytic about like the way that they pursue life. And I want people to think about like privilege, um, the ways that they have their own privilege. Uh, and um how their life experiences 
while uh, are very much uh, distinct to themselves and can be used to define uh, the things that they went through can't necessarily be used like to, uh, I don't know, to understand the things that other people have been through. And, you know, honestly, like, I want to say, like, I hope that people listen to it and they realize that it, like, you know, uh, authoritarianism and fascism in all its different varieties, like, and ways that it, like, rears its head in the world, like, is something that must be struggled against because, like, really that's the overarching theme, you know, like, is, like, dismantling systems of oppression, um, whether they be, like, personal, like, um, oppression, like, in the form of, like, self-doubt and, like, self-destructive behaviors of very various different types. Um, and, um, you know, like, or they be, like, actual, like, you know, constructs of, um, you know, oppressive systems that all of us experience in different ways. And that, like, we can't casually hope to uh, see them, like, disappear because they're deliberately placed there. Um, and the people who deliberately place them there and propagate them, like, want them to be there and they're going to do everything that they can to make sure that they stay there. And you passively just saying like, I don't, you know, like that's wrong. If I just sit here and say to myself, that's wrong, then eventually it'll go away and get better. Right. And like, I want people to realize that that's not actually a thing. And that like, you know, the closer that we come to recognizing that like, changing the world does take self-sacrifice and uh, self-analyzation and like uh, that it doesn't require us to like hate ourselves for things we've done in the past. Um, And that like uh, it may require us to come to terms with some of the shitty behaviors that we have been indoctrinated in and maybe some of the things potentially that some of us have done to other human beings, it may force us to like, to be, um, you know, to come to terms with that on our own and also to, uh, be held accountable for those things. Doesn't mean that like, uh, it shouldn't stop the, you from doing those things. You know, who is it that said it? Is it, is it, Maya Angelou or, uh, God damn it. I can't remember who said it. I'm, I knew like yesterday and for some <laughs> reason I can't think of it, but it's like, you know, we are only doing our best until we have like new information that helps us to do even better. And like, I want for people to be open to new information and for people to know that if they, have stopped learning then there's no point in like continuing breathing because like learning is one of the greatest things that a human being can possibly do if you can learn something new every single day then like then there's a point to being alive and you're right that was my angelou it was my angelou yeah i know we talked for a while thank you for your time austin where can people find you and hear more of your work 
can find me on social media. That's uh, my Instagram is at Austin Lucas Music. Um, my website is austinlucas.com. Uh, my Facebook is Austin Lucas Music, and my Twitter is Austin Lucas I N D. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. You can find me there. You can find me on Spotify. You can find me on Amazon Music. You can find me on uh, YouTube. You can find me anywhere. Uh, if you Google my name or uh, any other um, search engine device that you prefer, um, you can find me by looking up Austin Lucas, and there will be many, many pages of information about me, which you can take in. All right. Thank you, Austin. Yeah, thank you so much, Sam. It was a pleasure being on uh, Southpaw. I'm really grateful to have found this show. I want you to know that. Oh, really appreciate it. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse. Hitting with the left. South Pulse. Sam. Paul. South Paul. South Paul.